Chapter thirty seven Part D of Organic Evolution This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Eric Metzler. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lowell. Part three The Evidences of Evolution. Section three Paleontology. Chapter thirty seven D. Part two the evolution of man ontogeny and morphology anatomical and ontogenetic evidences for human evolution vestigial organs drummond mentions no fewer than seventy such relics which he most appropriately calls the scaffolding left in the body relics of old-time conditions and needs for which the modern human economy has no further use they are veritable historical documents enclosed within the limits of each human frame during part or the whole of its existence, and may be viewed in no other light. Certain of these features disappear with growth and maturity, and hence are ontogenetic. Others persist during the lifetime of their possessor. One of these persistent vestigial features is the direction of hair on the body. That upon the arms, for instance, runs from shoulder to elbow and from the wrist upward and outward in such a way that, were the hands clasped above the head with the elbows pointing downward, a posture often assumed by the orang, the hair thus arranged sheds the falling rain. In all anthropoids except the gibbon, the same direction of hair prevails as with mankind, hence the conclusion of a bygone community of habit between man and these apes is irresistible. Then, too, the absence of hair on the terminal phalanges, its scarcity on the second, and greater abundance on the first, are true of the anthropoids as well as of man. The vermiform appendix has been mentioned as a diagnostic characteristic of the family hominidae, and also of the semiidae. In man it is not only apparently useless, but is sometimes a veritable death-trap. With herbivorous mammals, on the other hand, its homologue is large and of high digestive value. Even in man the appendix has the same structure as the large intestine, peritoneum, muscular coat, and mucus layer. In the embryo it has the same caliber as the rest of the bowel but soon ceases to grow and is actually as long in the newborn babe as in the adult. The Darwinian point to the ear is a little conical projection from the inwardly turned margin of the ear, more frequent in the male than in the female, as are all atavistic features. This is in man a relic of the pointed ear found in lower mammals, and is, as Darwin says, a surviving symbol of the stirring times and dangerous days of his animal youth. Thin bands of muscle, formerly of value in moving the shell of the ear to aid in the appreciation of sound, are still present but usually functionless, as are also the present but involuntary hair-erecting muscles of the scalp. Most of the dermal muscles, in fact, so well developed in lower animals for twitching the skin, are retained in the human face only where they are used for the expression of the emotions. Doubtless their retention is in part of defensive significance, as they may well have been used to strike terror into the breast of an opponent. In addition to this, they also aided in the expression of the emotions, as of pleasure or pain, and together with the voice formed the first elemental speech. A further vestige is the plica semilunaris, a crescentic fold of membrane in the inner corner of the eye which represents the very efficient third eyelid or nictitating membrane of the eyes of many mammals and of birds 
the pineal body of the brain is connected in reptiles, notably hateria, with a third eye, really the first primordial vertebrate eye. In man this is present as a vestige deep hidden beneath the mass of the forebrain. In other mammals that portion of the upper jaw, which bears the incisor teeth, is separated off by a suture, and is known as the premaxillary bone. In man and the chimpanzee the suture is normally obsolete, yet the poet Goethe predicted that some day the separate premaxillary would be found in man, and so it has been. Moreover, the frontal bone, single in man, paired in the dog, is paired in an Abyssinian skull in the Yale collection. Ontogenetic Vestiges Embryology teaches us much of the past life of any race, and this is just as true of humanity as of any other created being. For the unfolding of the miniature man shows precisely the same one-celled condition of the ages remote protozoan ancestry, the same cleavage stages, morula, blastula, and gastrula, as any other metazoan. The gradual assumption of chordate characteristics, of notochord, of hollow nervous system, of gill slits, the budding of limbs, at first as ill-formed as those of the earliest slime-borne amphibian emergent from the old limiting aquatic environment, the perfected limbs and the well-developed tail of an ancient placental mammal, and the ultimate loss of this and other embryonic structures, until a man is born into the world. Thus these wonderful changes, wrought in the dark, reproduce, as in a pageant, the historic changes brought about by the evolutionary process during the long night of the geologic past. Certain of the ontogenetic features may be more specifically mentioned, such as the gill slits, of which there are four in the embryo. Sometimes certain of these fail to close so that openings remain on the sides of the neck through which fluids taken in at the mouth can trickle, or the slits may have closed, but white patches on the skin betray their former position. The first gill slit, the so-called spiracle of the fish, normally persists and forms the eustachian tube connecting the inner ear with the throat for the purpose of equalizing the air pressure on either side of the drum. The ear, in fact, is developed from this first gill slit, and the hearing organ may be subsequently repeated down the neck. As Drummond says, in some human families where the tendency to retain these special structures is strong, one member sometimes illustrates the abnormality by possessing the clefts alone, another has a cervical ear, while a third has both a cleft and a neck ear, all of these, of course, in addition to the ordinary ears. The tail is indicated in the human skeleton by the four or five bones at the loro terminus of the spine, coalesced in the adult into the coccygeal bone which is concealed beneath the flesh, but in the embryo not only is it present but is free movable, and has muscles for wagging it. These are usually reduced later to mere ligaments, but may permanently retain their muscular character. The external tail may also persist. The lanugo, or clothing of long dark hair which covers the entire body except the palms and soles up to the sixth month of prenatal life, usually disappears before birth, but in rare circumstances may persist and give a permanent hairy aspect to both face and body. This fetal hair is also found in other hairless mammals such as the elephants and whales, and can have but the one historical significance, harking back to the day when hair was a racial necessity, and not a superfluity as it is today in all three groups. 
The awful grasp of a baby, as Drummond puts it, is also significant, for the power of grip, notably great during the first few weeks of its life when it needs the most constant care, sensibly weakens later as experiments have shown. These consisted in the suspending from a stick or from the finger by the power of their hands alone some sixty infants which were under a month old, and in at least half of these experiment was tried within an hour of birth. In every instance, with only two exceptions, the child was able to hang on to the finger or a small stick, three-quarters of an inch in diameter, by its hands, and sustained the whole weight of its body for at least ten seconds. In twelve cases, in infants under an hour old, half a minute passed before the grip relaxed, and in three or four nearly a minute. When about four days old, the strength had increased, and nearly all, when tried at this age, could sustain their weight for half a minute. About a fortnight or three weeks after birth the faculty appeared to have attained its maximum, for several at this period succeeded in hanging for over a minute and a half, two for just over two minutes, and one infant of three weeks old for two minutes thirty-five seconds. Invariably the thighs are bent nearly at right angles to the body, and in no case did the lower hymns hang down and take the attitude of the erect position. Furthermore, the child showed no sign of distress and no cries uttered until the grasp begins to give way. Drummond. This is, of course, one of the many instances, mainly structural, however, which point to the old-time arboreal life, not perhaps that the infant of that day clung directly to the tree, but that the mother did and had to have her hands free for brachiation, hence it was necessary for the infant to cling to her. Another phenomenon which has received a similar interpretation, that of arboreal life, is the occasional dreams one has of falling through space with the violent instinctive effort often undergone to prevent disastrous consequences. And the strange thing about it is that in the dream the fall never ends fatally, for that is an experience which could not be transmitted to offspring, for such would not exist, while that of the fall could. Jack London, in his book Before Adam, makes much of this. Roosevelt says of nightmares, although without necessarily implying an historical interpretation to them, civilized man now usually passes his life under conditions which eliminate the intensity of terror felt by his ancestors when death by violence was their normal end and threatened them during every hour of the day and night. It is only in nightmares that the average dweller in civilized countries undergoes the hideous horror which was the regular and frequent portion of his age's vanished forefathers, and is still an everyday incident in the lives of most wild creatures. Scribner's Magazine, May 1910 These examples out of many, Wiedersheim says 180, are sufficient to show that the human body cannot be considered as a perfect final work of creation but rather the ultimate product of eons of evolutionary change, resulting in a very imperfect being from the physical point of view, a veritable museum of antiquities. End of chapter 37, part D. Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America.